HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Beth Novak Milliken. We'll talk to Beth about wine, women in wine, and a lot more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Beth Novak Milliken is president and CEO of Spotswood Winery in the town of St. Helena in Napa, California. Spotswood is one of the few wineries in Napa run by women. After the passing of her dad, Jack, Beth's mom, Mary, decided to continue to run the winery, eventually bringing Beth into the fold at this multi-generational family business. All Spotswood wines are state-grown and certified organic. Beth has also devoted herself to wine, philanthropy, and the community, and we'll talk to her about that. Beth, thank you for coming on The Grape Nation and helping us launch our June Women in Wine Month. You're our first guest this month. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sam. I'm very happy to be a part of it. All right. So, Beth, I want you to give my listeners um, a little background on you, the winery, and the family. So what I want is a quick journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is running the winery as president and CEO. So you pick the point where you should start, keep moving, and get me to current. Okay, will do. Uh, Basically, my family bought the property that is known as Spotswood uh, in 1972. So we were from North San Diego County, where my father was a 
doctor, a general practitioner, and um, he, at age 39, decided that he wanted to raise his five children, of which I am one and right in the middle, um, (laughs) in a more rural environment. And at the time, uh, Napa Valley was very, very rural. It was very much a mixed ag community. It had, we had uh, plum trees here for prunes, and there were walnut trees for, of course, walnuts, and then there were vineyards. And at that time, uh, it was really quite undiscovered. Uh, my parents actually had both from Southern California, but had met at Stanford and had some friends who had moved up here just a few years prior and visited them and sort of were like, wow, you know, we could we could make something neat happen up here. Um, with zero knowledge, by the way, of grape growing or winemaking, <laughs> simply a desire to wow. be in a more rural environment and raise their family somewhere different. And at this time, um, Napa Valley was entirely undiscovered, so land prices were... A very low. Um, they were about $4,000 an acre. And the reason that I bring that up, of course, is because uh, we would definitely not be here today uh, had we not moved here at a time when land was affordable for us. Tell <laughs> so, people what an acre goes I know, for it now. Was very fortunate. So again, my parents knew nothing about grape growing or winemaking. They really had three parameters. They needed a house that was large enough for five children. Uh, my father wanted to quit being a doctor and drive a tractor. I always shake my head at that one, but that's <laughs> what he wanted to do. Uh, and then uh, my mother was an avid gardener. So they looked around at Napa Valley and chanced upon this beautiful old property that was called Spotswood. So its name was came, came with the property. Um, it was actually an estate that was established in 1882 by a German immigrant who built the residence, which is a beautiful old Victorian home, uh, built it as his summer home. He was a hotel manager uh, from Monterey, and actually the design of our porch and, and sort of the house, the way the porch is, it looks, mirrors the old hotel uh, Del Monte that no longer exists because it burned a few times and they moved out to Pebble Beach. But he, he built this as a summer residence. It's a beautiful, beautiful architecture. And then um, he owned the property from 1882 until 1906 when it was sold and uh, the name was changed. He named it Esmeralda. The new owners named it uh, Stonehurst. And then in 1908, it was sold to a family who named it Lindenhurst. And then 1910, uh, a woman named Mrs. Spots purchased it, and she named it Spotswood. So at the time that we purchased it, the stone wall that fronts the property was there, and the arched sign uh, between the two pillars that says Spotswood was also already there. And so um, it had the name Spotswood, which was a very fortunate thing, because Novak doesn't really, which is my maiden name, doesn't right. really lend itself to much that I don't think is particularly attractive. So right. we're glad it had a name. Did, At any w- rate, Beth, did- um, the, the, gate, the gate was actually had been built for horse and buggy, and of course we had rather large, you know, a Ford station wagon with the fake wood paneling. You probably remember the days, or you may. Right. Um, it, cars like that that could barely fit through, so we had to widen the pillar. And I mean, the whole town was just up in arms. And who are these newcomers? What are they doing to Spotswood? And not only were we new, uh, we were from Southern California. So uh, that's never a good thing for Northern Californians. <laughs> so right. we, my parents widened the sign and put it right back up, and, and thus the name, uh, the name, though, was never anticipated changing it, stuck. Um, so we, we bought the old property, spent the first summer fixing up the house because, honestly, it was it was in a state of some disrepair and needed bedrooms added upstairs to accommodate all five children. And so the summer first summer was spent doing that, and then starting in 1973, uh, we started replanting the old vineyard. My dad realized his dream of driving a tractor, and we have it's about a 45-acre property right up against the western hills of the town of St. Helena, so we're actually in the city limits of St. Helena, interestingly enough, um, and we have 45 acres, roughly 40 of which are planted vineyards. So when we first planted the vineyard, we had roughly nine acres of Sauvignon Blanc, uh, nine acres of Zinfandel, and then about 20 acres of Cabernet Sauvignon in the very back. Um, and then after this was all, oh, and what we removed to plant that were old post-prohibition varietals, which were basically Petit Syrah, Napa Gamay, French Colombard, and Green Hungarian. So, um, Replanted the the vines based upon Rick Foreman being a neighbor. My parents just got to know people who gave them suggestions of what to plant. Of course, we planted entirely on AXR1 rootstock, which will come into play when our replanting happens uh, later. But I'm jumping ahead. So we replant the vineyard in about 1975. My dad actually had to go back to work um, as a doctor because he was spending an awful lot of money on this new uh, endeavor and making none. And so he went back to work for uh, a number of years as an emergency room doctor here in St. Helena. And then 
uh, very unexpectedly when he was just 44 years old. He died of a heart attack, um, leaving my mother uh, a widow with this property five years after we had gotten here. So um, my mom was the same age. Uh, at that time, she took stock and recognized that she had already fallen in love with um, St. Helena and that she recognized also that she had a livelihood here because the vineyard that had been replanted, we were already selling some of the grapes even before uh, my dad died. So um, she recognized that she could continue to do this. So she she continued to sell the grapes to people like Frog Sleep and St. Clement and ultimately went to Joe Heights, who she was actually scared to death to talk to, but she <laughs> did, and he bought her grapes. Um, Mike Robbins, who was at Spring Mountain, and then ultimately... Uh, the Duckhorn families and the the Duckhorn family and the Schaefer family started some buying of the best grapes from us. Yeah, and the, yes, some of the best. Yes, some of the best, exactly. And uh, they loved the fruit. They were good family friends. They encouraged my mom uh, to make our own wine because they really felt the Cabernet was special. So in 1982, we made our first vintage of Spotswood Cabernet Sauvignon, um, and that was what exactly ten years after we moved here and five years after my dad's death, that my mom was able to realize their shared dream. Um, Tony Soder was our original winemaker, and he is remarkable. He started Etude uh, the same year. Mm -hmm. He has since sold that and is up in Oregon making his own Pinot Noir called Soder. But he was had been up at Chapelet, wanted to, you know, came and visited uh, the vineyard, felt like it had great potential, um, and was excited to take on Spotswood as his first outside project uh, he had been up at Chapelet, and so he he came to us uh, and then also started his etude the same year. Uh, and then in 1985, so three years later, he recognized that he wanted to have a really close relationship uh, between the vineyard uh, and the wine. If he was going to be able to make wines from this estate, he wanted to have an intimate connection with the, with the, with the grapes and the vines. And so he uh, took over our farming in 1985 and introduced organic farming practices at that time. So we were the first in Napa Valley to start farming organically and uh, the second to be so certified. Um, and so the vineyard today, if you if you were to come and visit, um, the romantic description of how to find us, because as I noted, we are in the city limits of St. Helena, is to come north on Highway 29 and you get to the Chevron station in the town of St. Helena and make a left-hand turn. And if you go six blocks you will literally run into that stone wall and the sign that says Spotswood and see that Victorian um, behind it. So um, in the 1990s, we ultimately had to replant the vineyard. I mentioned the AXR1 rootstock that was not resistant to phylloxera. We ultimately did get phylloxera, and so we did our replanting starting in 19, after the 90 harvest, um, and we put we sacrificed that acreage that had been devoted to Sauvignon Blanc and put Cabernet Sauvignon on the ground and then continued with the replant over a roughly eight- or nine-year period, um, continuing to make Spotswood Cabernet throughout. Um, and and uh, so we got the vineyard uh, replanted in that, in that decade. Early in that decade, early in the 90s, we were also able to move up the street. So our winery, I'm so sorry, there goes my mobile. That's okay. Um, I, we were able to move up the street. There's a beautiful old uh, pre-prohibition stone winery building in which our barrels are kept, our second-year barrel room. Our barrels were initially kept in the cellar of my mom's house, and we were bursting at the seams, and our offices were originally uh, upstairs where our kids' bedrooms had been, and I think my mom was getting a little uh, tired of um, all the activity at her house. So this this property across the street came available. I had an old farmhouse on it um, that we uh, – converted to our offices and then we but we first we got our barrels uh in the barrel room then we fixed up the old house uh, to be our offices and then ultimately in the late 90s after we had completed our replanting for phylloxera we were actually able to build a production facility and so we have our estate winery here on this property uh and so since 1999 we've been a true estate winery that's great all right, so let's talk. So that that gets us to current. You know, that I guess it's current. Yeah. I, you know, you are in a state winery. You grow your own grapes. You mint your own grapes. You do it on premise. Let's talk about you being one of the first wineries in Napa after your dad passed away to wholly be run by women. So, how are things then that you remember, and how are things now? I guess you looked up to your mom. And she was running the business, yeah. but she was also a woman, which is, you know, a high minority out there and in the business yeah. and all that. So what, what do you remember, 
you know, as a woman doing that. Does anything stand out? Well, so so my, I mean, for my mom, when she was starting this, starting in 82, I mean, I was in college at UCLA, and I wasn't really, I wasn't a part of that. I did, right. I came to work uh, with my mom in 1987, which I, I never expected to do so so quickly on that. Um, you know, when my father died when I was a junior in high school, St. Lee and I went to junior high and high school here, and I thought I would never come back. It's a very small community. It was, as I mentioned, I mean, it was quite rural and, and what I would call redneck at the right. time. And I went, uh, I went off to UCLA with no thoughts of the wine business because there wasn't any wine business um, to even be uh, considered because we didn't have a wine business at the time that I went off to college. So anyway, I went to UCLA, and then I ended up spending my junior year abroad in uh, Salzburg, Austria, of, of all places. And... Um, and somehow or another, you know, you live in Europe and you think you're sophisticated, which I was not, of course, but you think you are and you can drink wine legally. And somehow or another, I thought, you know, wine is quite interesting to me. And I knew I didn't want to stay in Southern California after school. So I came back and graduated UCLA in my senior year and then moved to Northern California and got, actually before I graduated, I already had a job with a wine brokerage, um, at, which was called Bruce McCumber Wines. And um, we sold wines like Joseph Phelps at the time that they used to make so many so many wines, um, uh, Pine Ridge, Saintsbury, Camus in the old days, <laughs> um, golly, White Oak, Balvern. I mean, labels that people haven't even heard of. But we had some really really neat, iconic sort of small brands that we that we sold in the Bay Area. So I, I sold wine there um, and and did that for about two and a half years. Uh, in the meantime, I met the man who is has now been my husband for thirty years. But we met in San Francisco and. Uh, ended up sort of quitting our jobs and hiking and backpacking through the Pacific Northwest and having sort of three months of just living off of the land in a way, if you will. And then, I mean, going to different places and taking backpacking trips and then came back to San Francisco. Um, I was doing temp work at that time because it was sort of the time when PCs were coming on. And so I thought it'd be great to learn about how to use, uh, use them well and to become a little bit uh, versed in that. And then just as I was starting to think about you know, getting back in the wine business, my mom gave me a call and said, can you help me out a couple of days a week? So I, I was living in the city with John and uh, started coming up a couple of days a week. And I think literally within two or three weeks, it turned into full time. And ultimately, John and I moved here and, uh, and, and sort of the rest, the rest is history. Uh, as far as that goes, I was very concerned about him moving here because he's originally from Chicago. And I thought that this would not be quite right. big enough for him. But um, it has turned out to be a community that we both love, and uh, it's 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 great to be here. So you worked side by side with your mom for many years, right? I did, like twenty nine years. I mean, what did you learn from her? I mean, what what were the best things about being with her every day in the wine business? I think you know she was she was amazing, but I think I learned uh, strength and and fortitude and and standing by what what you believe in. Um, she was quietly very strong. Um, she really did take a risk to start uh, a winery when she really knew little to nothing about business. And so with her, um, yeah, I, I think I learned sort of, you know, and, and humility. I mean, always, always carrying yourself with a sense of of who you are and never, and never, you know, just, just being, just being real and authentic and true to oneself. And, honoring this piece of ground, I learned certainly the love of the uh, property and of the land land. uh, from her. So yeah, for me, working with her was, um, you know, just a a remarkable opportunity. And and it was, it was a great experience. I mean, she just, you know, died barely a year and a half ago. I still miss her more than I'll ever, ever be able to uh, express in words. She was, she was a remarkable human being. Did you perceive at any point in the early days that her being a woman in the business or you was any issue or you just didn't feel it then? I didn't really feel it that much. I I wish I could explain that, but I, I didn't really, I didn't really feel that. I, and I don't know why maybe it was just because my mom was the owner and people knew that she was the owner of Spotswood. And, and so there wasn't any, um, and and I, I can't really explain it, but I ne- I never really I never really felt that. I also think the way you described her, you know, her all her values and her personality and her traits, 
out in the market. You know, she probably uh, warranted a lot of respect. Um, do you ever think about how women are doing in wine today? I mean, do you think there's an issue with women in wine? I mean, do you, are, do you feel a little secluded from that in Napa or... I, 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 I don't, I mean, I feel like it's pretty open to women here. And if you think about other women-owned wineries, I mean, there's Naoko Dalavale and there's Delia Viader. Right. Um, Hall. Hall, right. I mean, Craig is involved, but Catherine is there right. running it. Um, who else can I think of that I kind of, and then you think about people in winemaking, whether it's Rosemary Cakebread or Mia Klein or Jennifer Williams. Celia, or, Heidi. Know, Heidi Barrett. Right. Um, I've, I guess, and Francoise Pechon, who's, you know, I mean, it right. just there's just a lot of names of, of women. I feel like Pam Starr, um, I always have felt like this business, maybe more than many others, is, is quite open to women. I mean, Eileen Crane running St. Supere, there's, there's a lot of examples, right. and I feel like, I feel like this industry is really, is really very open to it. I, I guess I just have never really felt... Mm, it was an any, issue. Anything really yeah. from being from being female? Uh, maybe, maybe Napa people, uh, women had more opportunities. I mean, you mention a lot of people. It still may be a fraction of the overall, you know, uh, market, but it's still a lot, which is a nice thing. Exactly. I would I would say that you are correct, a hundred percent, that it is a fraction of the overall, but that it is, it does exist and it is recognized. Yeah. Um, if I was, <laughs> I'm not, but if I was a young woman, you know, and I met you at the winery or bumped into you at a restaurant and, you know, I really had an interest in the industry, I guess from everything you told me, you'd be very encouraging about getting into the business as a woman, right? Yes, I, I would be. I would be. And it seems, and I think, I think really at every level, whether it's marketing uh, and or sales or uh, production. There's many, many women in production. I mean, I would say that really every aspect of this, of this business is is available to and open to women. I mean, Joseph Phelps. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but they've just hired uh, a female to come in and be president and 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 run their business, wow. which is which is really exciting. So I That's think a big I leap. think there really are opportunities here. Yeah. So then. Things are good in that sense. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yes. to hear it from your perspective out in Napa. Um, you know, the world that you're surrounded with, you feel good about it. Let's talk about the uh, winery a little. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me about, you said St. Helena, but let's talk about location, terroir. Let's talk about your winemaking philosophy, you know, which has been heralded. Um, you know, let's literally get into soils and, you know, um, when you're making the wine, you know, things that you do that are uh, specific to Spotswood, part of your mission. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I can. So, as I mentioned, we're on the west side of the town of St. Helena. So, what we really are is the northernmost part of what is known as the western benchland of of Napa Valley, which essentially starts down in Yountville near Dominus right. and, and ends basically with Spotswood. So once you head north of us, you're at Barringer, and, and the mountains really come right down to Highway 29, and that sort of benchland uh, is, is it, it's just where it ends. And what the benchland represents are alluvial soils that have been washed down from the, from the western hills um, in, in, our, in our case. I mean, there's also alluvial uh, soils on the east side. But on the west side, this whole benchland area, these alluvial soils, and what makes those really special is that they have um, they, they have sort of sandy sandy loam. Uh, they're good. They're really well drained. So the idea is that um, one's vines get a sense that at a certain point in time uh, they get the messaging because the soils are well drained and water falls out of it that they need to stop sort of growing vegetative growth and sort of get to the job of ripening its, their fruit. And so they're sort of self-regulating in that way. So the soils are, are really, really good. And I, I want to clarify that it was purely by accident. I mean, my parents were not, as I mentioned, I mean, they might have had Matus. Maybe they had had Lancers. <laughs> they were not fine wine drinkers. This was strictly a lifestyle change. And they chanced upon this property and happened to buy. You stumbled um, on the soil. Yeah, and yeah. They, they, they were not grabbing the soil and holding it up, you know, with a right. great vision in mind that this is going to be great for Cabernet. This was, this was truly just 
just just pure luck. So we we end up with these remarkable soils uh, by by pure luck. And what we do uh, in the winery, I, I think I mentioned that Tony Soder basically set the tone. When we started, we we of course looked to Bordeaux because that's that's who our exemplar would be. Correct. Right. Um, you know, in a way, I don't want to say the tables has turned, but I think the tables have turned. But I think sometimes we of course look at Bordeaux and we taste Bordeaux. And by the way, Bordeaux is also finally looking at us and tasting our wines and, of course, investing in Napa Valley. So um, so that's been an interesting transformation over many years. But um, so our goal always was to make wines that represented, sort of honored their, their soil and honored their wines of a time and of a place. So they honor their, their vintage and they honor their their place, the this, this source of the grapes. And with Tony, that was always what he wanted to do, is he wanted to show what the Spotswood Estate could do on an annual basis. We use about 60% new oak um, on a, on a given, in any given year, not 100%. So we're looking for the beauty that California has to offer in all of our wines, but with, with structure, with balance, uh, with elegance, um, with ageability, with, you know, a truly classic um, beautiful wine uh, that can be enjoyed, it seems, uh, when upon release, and yet uh, develops so much more uh, with with more time in the bottle um, that right. that it's it's definitely worth worth waiting for. Um, uh, but that's that's what we've always looked looked toward and, and looked to do. So our philosophy in terms of picking is basically always picking when the fruit is ripe. So we we definitely do not want. We don't want underripe, obviously, because we don't want green flavors. Right. We don't want overripe because we we want freshness. We want energy and tension, by which we mean good, juicy acids. And the best way for me to to sort of speak to that is if you consider a blueberry, and you know when blueberries are perfectly ripe and they're crisp, and you bite into them, and they have a really good acidity along with their sweetness, and they're just at that kind of perfect balance point. And then, you know, if blueberries sit for too long and they kind of get mushy, and and then the skin's kind of dimple, too sweet, and, and they're they're less fresh. So we're looking to pick grapes at that perfect freshness. That's if Mother Nature gives us to us. That's exactly what we're seeking. We don't want them to go to go too far. Um, and then we bring them into the to the winery. Both Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet are, are we pick everything as a, with with that ethic in mind. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is treated one way, of course, because you separate the the juice from the skins uh, right away, and then and then ferment the juice, uh, which is all done for us and our Sauvignon Blanc in uh, small stainless steel barrels, small French oak barrels, and then um, cement eggs. So we do all small. We do all small fermentations, well over 200 fermentations a year to create our Sauvignon Blanc and craft it. And then with the Cabernet, we, we bring it in and, of course, we, we soak it for a little bit. And then we allow fermentation to start uh, and we do pump overs and just do everything to, um, to, to extract that which we want uh, and, and, to, and to make you know, a, a beautiful wine that we know of as Spotswood. Do you, on the uh, cabs, do you use any other grapes to blend? We do. We have both Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. And you grow those on the estate? We do indeed, yes. And every year the mix, the blend varies, right? Based on the grapes, the vintage? Exactly. So the blend generally is somewhere in that 85 to 90% Cab. Cabernet Sauvignon, okay. and then anywhere from sort of 5 to 8% um, Cabernet Franc and, and anywhere from it could be up as, as high as ten percent Cab Franc and then anywhere from from two to five percent Petit Verdot. Right. So, couple of quick questions about Go organics. Um, you said what I was going to say, which is you were one of the first wineries, if not the first, to go organic, and. I guess it was Tony Soder that was a driving force there. Um, so, quick question: That's the viticulture. What about in the cellar? I mean, does the organic philosophy carry through in the winemaking? I, I mean, philosophically, I would say Aaron Weinkoff, who is our vineyard manager and our winemaker, and who's worked with us since two thousand and six. Um, philosophically, he's very much about uh, the organic part. Would be. I mean, winemaking is is organic when it comes right down to it. Basically, right. all I mean, we certainly do use sulfur. Um, well, most and we people do use in the states ice, do, uh, but yeah. you know, to to keep to keep freshness and to keep the wine uh, to keep the must cold. Um, but basically, I think where that all comes into uh, play is 
just sort of looking long-term and looking at each wine and each lot individually and listening to what the wine and the grapes have to say each year. There is no formula, so it's all, it's, it, there's definitely not a formula. Every year is, is vastly different. I would suggest that with climate change, um, we're having extremes, obviously, that yep. we've never seen before, yep. and I would certainly expect more of those going forward. And so it's just listening to, just like when you farm organically, and in fact, we do a lot of biodynamics, you're really sort of looking at the vineyard, listening to it, getting a sense of it. Um, the, the same thing with the wines, that we're really making them by, by feel for, for each vintage and for uh, what Mother Nature has provided in that, in that year, and then, and then doing our very best with that. Right. Um, do you feel uh, Napa, the Napa Valley all the winemakers that have been around, that have come in, do you think they're doing a good job honoring the land, moving towards organics, you know, intervening less? Um, you, you know, you literally are a pioneer. I mean, are yeah. you satisfied with where it's at now? Is it slow? People don't give a crap? I mean, what, <laughs> what, what do you say you to know, that? You I think, know, I think it's mixed. I mean, I would say that... Growers here in the Maine are very responsible because they own something of great value, uh, you know, regardless of when they've purchased it. And I think everybody's goal is to grow the very finest uh, grapes so that the very finest wines uh, can be produced here. Um, as to how many people are actually farming organically, I, I would say that there are not as many as I think there should be. Okay. So there's still this notion that farming, quote, sustainably, unquote, whatever that means, it's kind of defined by the Wine Institute in a way. But, I mean, farming sustainably means that you use Roundup to, to right. control under, under vine weeds. Well, that is not, in my mind, sustainable, no. nor is it anywhere near. It's a long way from organic. So it's an interesting juxtaposition whereby people do care very much for their land, but there's still a lack of, oh golly, maybe a lack of awareness of how damaging chemicals like that are and, and, and not yet a sense that, wow, we really need to just, you know, we just need to move away from these and, and, just, and just walk away. But that just isn't here yet because it's, no. it's, it's habit, it's cost, it's everything else, I suppose. Right. Do you get on the soapbox every now and then? Do you nudge people or, I, yes, you know, it's, we, it's not your right mission now, alone. Yes. But I, I do, and I and I think it's important that we continue to do so. We we the Napa Valley Grape Growers every year um, host an organic uh, wine growing forum, and it actually happens here at Spotswood. Um, and I think that through efforts like that, you know, people understand the the value of organic farming. It's more getting. Um, golly, I guess getting ownership uh, aligned with with right. making that transition, and I just think you no know, people are creatures of habit, and 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 if you actually have a belief that Roundup's not all that bad and things like that, then then you continue to do it. But I, I just I don't understand how how you know we we need to move beyond that type right. of thinking because glycophosphate. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but before we break, um, I wanted to ask you one question. And then when we yep. come back, a couple more questions. We have a thing called the wine list where I ask my guests all their uh, wine preferences, mostly personal. So I want to dig into that. Um, and uh, a few more questions after that. So it, it's, it's kind of funny. Your wines have been described certainly as, you know, elegant and age-worthy. I know that because I collect them. But they've also been described as feminine. Any coincidence with a bunch of women running the winery? But Tony Soder was the winemaker on the original thing. I mean, do you think the wines are feminine, elegant, age-worthy? Is that code word for restrained, which is not fair? Um, you know, good good question. I uh, Why are they called feminine? I mean, I think it could be tied to feminine ownership, although I've not read, for example, what, what is Margot called? Is it called a more feminine wine? I have a feeling that it is. True. Um, True. There are grapes and regions that may be more feminine than others. It's possible. I mean, I think our wine is, it has... It has immense power. Um, the the way that Aaron describes it, and I think he does so this really well, is it has the it has the power of a yogi versus the power of a 
big brawny bodybuilder, if that makes sense. Go. So it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> like in it. his prime. It is more like a yogi where all that tensile strength, all of that power is there, and yet it's held in this in a very remarkable uh, way um, where where it is so. You know, to call it feminine, I, I don't know. I think our I didn't. Quite, I mean, I've read. Quite you know, powerful, those have been dis- but, uh, but, yeah. But it is I like held that. in that in that more in that in, in a much more balanced, um, well well knit style. Right. All right. We're talking to Beth Novak Milliken. Beth runs Spotswood Winery out in California, a very highly regarded winery uh, that her dad and mom uh, bought many years ago, as she described. When we come back, we're going to throw a few more questions at Beth and then subject her to a wine list. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. It's no secret that I like being that person who always has some great wine on hand. When I know I've got a few bottles hanging around the kitchen, I feel like I'm ready for anything. If anything is just because I never know when friends will drop by unannounced, or because it's even just a Monday. I also hate that last minute run to the store. Wine was never meant to be bought in a hurry. It's funny how we have so much patience growing the grapes, aging the wine, only to feel pressured when you're staring at the shelf. I use Vivino to scan and keep track of my favorites. But lately, I've been stocking up through their web store. They have the best prices and largest online wine inventory, but can also give you personalized recommendations based on bottles you've liked in the past. And I use their premium service for unlimited free shipping. That's an extra bottle's worth of savings on every order. Plus, they have a 30-day free trial. I just grab a few at a time and save them from when the right moment rolls around. You never know when that'll be. Visit vivino.com backslash grape nation to stock up all right we're back we're back with my guest beth novak milliken from spotswood winery in california um beth i wanted to ask you if you think that napa and california wines have changed talking the wine the people the area since you joined the business, I guess, over 31 years ago. I mean, what's notable to you? Or is it the same old thing? It is definitely not the same old thing. So I'd say that, um, so certainly when we started uh, in, the, in the early 80s, and, and most of the vineyard here was either on old St. George rootstock or the more recent AXR1, um, when when the grapes were ripe, they were they were ripe at at lower sugar levels, and so wines regularly clocked in sort of mid to high twelve percent, maybe a little bit over thirteen percent um, alcohol. And then uh, I think sort of two things happened when when vineyard replanting started, which was in the nineties. Different rootstocks were used, of course, because what we certainly learned, at least one of the things we learned, is that. Uh, not to put all of one's eggs in one basket, because, of course, our whole vineyard was AXR1. It was three large blocks. So a lot of different rootstocks were utilized, and basically ripening the ripening curve um, on, with these uh, was was a bit a bit different. Um, and they they got grapes, how do I say it? I guess... I guess sugars were higher, grapes were ripe when sugars were a bit higher. Having said that, I think another part of this was that in the late 90s is when sort of a wine uh, is, I think that's when like, you know, Bob Parker started having quite an influence and was rating some wines uh, very high uh, that had very high levels of ripeness, um, read hang time, and therefore... Uh, very very high levels of of alcohol, and they were they were really packed and, and dense. And so all of a sudden, people started you know were looking around, going, "Huh, what is this style so liked by the one person that really um, is such a an influencer in our in our market?" And so I would I would suggest that that it sort of converged, whereby these replants happened, and all of a sudden, uh, vintners or growers had the ability to get their fruit riper by leaving it out there longer. Um, and getting these, getting these higher higher sugars, which meant higher alcohols, um, 
uh, and then and then using a lot of oak, and that seemed to be what was impressive. Um, <laughs> to I, I agree. I mean, that got the ratings. You know, exactly. the, the it shifted towards that because that's what people wanted, and that's what was selling shelf talkers and all of that. But I guess you need to answer the end of the question. It's kind of taken a turn. Right? It has and it hasn't. So you you I always practice. Yes, I think it has taken. Um, people are in the main moving to uh, more more restraint against. So I would say that uh, through the late '90s and and through the 2000s, the wines just got bigger and bigger. Maybe culminating with the '09. And then starting in 10, which was a cooler vintage, and then in 11, that was a really cool vintage, right. it, it seems as if things kind of started to ratchet back a little bit for a lot of people. Um, and so I would suggest that wines are being made now in in general are being made in that more uh, restrained style. There are people who are really consciously moving, moving right. that dial back. Uh, there are people who are continuing on with the style. Um, that they that they always made, uh, but they're you know the sort of got them to where they are. Um, but then there are those who are definitely bringing it back, and I, I hope more and more people do that because I think the more that we can express terroir here in Napa Valley, which means allowing you know making a wine that truly does respect uh, and reflect its vintage um, and its soil, is far better than making a wine where you just leave grapes hanging out there until they're shriveled and uh, and just you know, uh, have lost water and therefore the sugar level has gone up. And, and in essence, to me, I think you lose the sense of terroir when that happens. Right. Uh, like you said earlier, I mean, it's it's about the place. Yes. You know, the terroir. I mean, it's a, it's an agricultural business, so that's an important thing. All right. Um, we're going to go to the uh, wine list. But before, um, you've committed yourself to organics a long time ago, um, which certainly makes a better world. But I know you are also involved in the community and philanthropy as Beth and as Spotswood. Um, quick me, quickly tell me some of the things you know that you do, recognizing all of that. So in essence, philanthropically, we, we put our efforts toward both the natural environment and toward our local public schools or our sort of our main uh, focuses. So, you know, here in St. Helena, I mean, we support our Salina Public Schools with a with a large donation um, every year. Uh, there are four of them: a primary, elementary, you know, middle, and high. Um, we support uh, the Boys and Girls Club, and we support other things related to sort of early childhood education, that kind of stuff. Then, right. on the environmental side, I mean, we support the Land Trust of Napa County, um, which is one of our big ones. The Trust for Public Land, um, yeah, golly, the Nature Conservancy. Um, you know, we 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 do a lot of we're 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 part of one percent for the planet, and we have been since two thousand and seven. And that is the organization or the quickly. group that was founded by Yvonne Chenard of Patagonia um, to basically promise to take one percent of your gross revenues and put them toward uh, environmental philanthropy on an annual basis. And so we've been doing that since two thousand and seven. So for us. Giving back in that way, and of course, taking care of our of our natural environment, and and providing for our public education is really important to us. All great stuff. That's why I brought it up because I wanted you to tell people. Oh, thanks. All right. Okay. Now I'm subjecting you to our wine list. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. We'll, okay. We'll buzz through them. You don't have to dwell on them. Okay. Um, we're talking to Beth Novak Milliken from Spotswood. All right, Beth. First question is, what are you drinking now? And the context of that question is, is it something seasonal? Are you curious where you're tasting things? Have you traveled? What are you drinking now that's different than what you normally drink? Okay, so so different from Spots of Sauvignon Blanc, of course, which is the 17, which is just being released. I would say this is the time of year where we sort of start diving into different rosés because okay. there's so many. There's really some excellent ones, not only, obviously, uh, French, but uh, but really a lot here in California that are really, really good. The Lorenzo Rosé made by a very good friend of mine named Mindy Kearney is just fantastic. She sources her Grenache and Morvette and, and all that. And so I believe as well from out in Lodi and is making a really, really nice wine. You know, there's the um, oh, Steve Mathiason's. Yep. Uh, I do buy, this is not a rosé, but I do buy um, Massican wine. So I like to buy these these sort of unique um, wines in, in Napa Valley where people are doing cool things. Right. Um, outside of that, I buy... 
you know, grammar, Gramercy Cellars up in Washington State, right. although I'm not talking about rosé here. That's, that's definitely yeah. more oh, about wine, Syrahs and stuff. So I, drinking now, I would say, is definitely more on the, on the rosé and certainly looking at the white side of life. So that okay. would be Albarinos from, from Spain. Um, God, there's just so many good wines out there. Well, you gave us a bunch, and we post everything on our social media. So um, when we're done with the list, I'll post the list on social. All right, what's Beth Novak Milliken's favorite wine and food pairing? Do you have one that just keeps coming back that you could keep at the oh, top golly. of the list? You know, I, I do have to say there's one. I mean, I, and this goes to our Sauvignon Blanc, although I, I, I love our cab. But um, my sister Kelly is a caterer, and she does this amazing sort of um, – Roasted tomato and 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 red pepper um, soup, like you know, where you roast those red peppers. That's a tough pairing. The skin, and then it has goat cheese and a little bit of chives on top, and it's it's chilled or it's it's actually room temperature. It is so good, and with us uh, julienne uh, basil on it, it is fantastic. So that is really good with our Sauvignon Blanc. We had Chapinese cooking for our auction dinner on Friday night, and this salmon carpaccio that they did was beyond fresh and beyond good, with a little bit of just olive oil, and it was fantastic and simple and went beautifully with that as well. So I would probably have to hold those out at the moment, Ugh. again, because we're talking about summer as, as favorite as favorite pairings. Of course, you cannot beat um, Cabernet Sauvignon with a, with a really steak. perfectly grilled steak, although I, I can't eat a whole steak, but I, I like to have a few slices, and it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> those are good ones. And Beth was alluding to the fact that the Napa wine auction was in town last week and they do a vintner dinner and it sounds like the Spotswood one had Chez Panisse. That's pretty happening, Beth. Yeah, that is. You know, their Chez Panisse is, is uh, fantastic. Um, just just set, sets the bar, you know, was the, the beginning of California cuisine, the beginning of farm to table. Um, just and, and they've just kept what they do at just the very... Yeah highest level and they do everything that they do beautifully and yeah it, to partner with them was was fantastic it was uh, an amazing dinner alice waters is a true ambassador she is all right um probably keep this in the context of where you are your favorite wine restaurant and or bar places that their attention towards the selection their knowledge um you know what they carry and all of that. I'm not asking you to leave people out or incriminate, but give me a couple places um, that you appreciate for their wine and food. Okay, for their wine service, and you kind of want me to stay local. Well, I, you can give yeah, me anything. I mean, I'll just stay local. You, you know, if so you have a really, favorite in New York, a really cool restaurant, and this is not about um, representing Spotswood, although they do. But there's a really neat restaurant down in Napa called Zuzu, which is a Spanish. Spanish tapas, and they just do a fantastic job. The food is exceptional, and their wine list is really small, tight, and just perfectly curated to to go to go with the wines that they have. Um, up here, sort of closer to home, golly, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I there's a lot. I mean, I loved Tara, but Tara just closed. I'm I'm heartbroken. Okay. Um, but they had just a really, really well chosen wine list that went. Well, with everything that they do, um, Cabernet Sauvignon has a super deep list. I mean, there's just there's so many different, you know. Right. Obviously, French Laundry you can't beat the wine list; it's massive. Right. Um, but they have everything. So, and obviously, they do a great job with the wine and food pairing. So we're we're lucky to be surrounded by so many that do such a good job. All right, those are good ones. Tell me Beth Novak Milliken's favorite all-time wine, if you have one or a couple, uh, something that resonates. Doesn't have to be the most expensive fancy wine. Could have been experiential. Can you think of anything? And now I can't remember. I mean, experiential throws me back to I think it was like a 1983, and I can't remember the producer, but it was a Volnay Clos de Chêne, and I had it with um, one of my best friends. Who she? It was before she got married and moved to Pittsburgh, and we were driving around when we were younger and more foolish, and spent a day in Mendocino and. Uh, drank that, uh, drank this bottle of wine while we were watching the sunset over the Pacific, and then, of course, drove back to my mom's house. Okay. <laughs> Probably not the smartest thing, but, you know, we were young and dumb then. And, uh, that you remember, and though. So that that was a fantastic one. I wish I could remember the producer, uh, but I cannot. And then I would say, I would say, if I could think of, you know, I wish I could think, but I, I love um, just really good grower champagnes, and I, I can't. Yes. 
you know, as of course I'm sitting here talking to you, everything leave everything leaves my my poor. Well, no, brain. as a cat, you're fine as a category. I mean, the okay, fact perfect. that one champagne, I love that you said that. Two grower champagne. We've had many experts and guests on, from Peter Liam to David White to champagne makers on Olivier Krug. So we're big champagne fans, and grower champagne is definitely um, a new direction. All right, I ask all my guests this. Um, it's a little tougher for a winery winemaker, but you got to dig in. Um, we try to give our audience some good information and drop some knowledge. So we ask all our guests, give me your best wine for around 15 bucks or up, not much more. Give me a red and a white. Now, I think in Napa it's tough, but I'm talking anywhere. You can go category like Muscadet. You can go region. You can go maker. So what do you think the best value wines are, 15, 20 bucks? Give me one red, one white. Okay, so for white, I would definitely do the Choco Lee, the, that, that great wine from northern Spain. Ah, from, that's a great one. I just, I just think that is, that is just fantastic. Now, let me think about $15 reds. Oh, 15 20 under 25 Like I said, it doesn't have to be just Napa. No, I know. I'm trying to think of world of, around the around the world. Like, what would I what would I drink at that price point? Well, this is kind of pathetic. Um, any region? Italy, France? I don't. I don't drink as much from Italy. Okay. I'm not as knowledgeable. I would say Spain. I guess I would say Spain. I mean, okay. I love the wines of Rioja. I don't know if you're going to find a great you one will. for fifteen or twenty dollars. But I think there's that one wine. From those mountains just north of Madrid. Ah, oh, golly darn it. I can't think of it right now, but... Um, I'm going to make you email it to me. But I think you hit on something. There are some value-oriented Riojas. Um, there are some great wines there. So we'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, all right. What do you think the best wines outside of Napa Valley are? Now, you made it pretty clear you're not drinking pretty much. Is it France? Is it Italy? Is it Washington State? If you had to pick a region... If I had to pick a region, um, I would probably consider sort of. Um, so, for example, I would think of the Pay wines. I start or the Hirsch. You know, I start to think of Sonoma Coast or some of those really cooler climate, some uh. of the cooler climate Pinot Noirs um, in in this area where you're really out and benefiting from that fog and just that coolness. I, I think I think that area to me is is really. Um, really exciting i think you're right because i think um they're producing a lot of great wines a lot of great pinots and there's a lot of old people not old people but people have been around making good wines and there's a bunch of new people um all right terrific job beth um i want you to sit some sit through something for a few minutes i'm going to set this up for you and then when it's over we're going to come back and wrap up the show my dear friend gary vaynerchuk who I did a show with on SiriusXM called Wine and Web. Yep. Um, after that, we did a website called The Daily Grape, and basically he would review different wines every day online. So one day he said to me, you got to bring in a couple of wines for tomorrow. So I brought in a Peter Michael Chardonnay, and I brought in the 2002 Spotswood because I'm on the mailing list, and I have them in my cellar. And I just thought he would enjoy that wine. So I'm going to play you. It's a few minutes, so just sit tight. I'm going to play you the audio from when he tasted the 2002 Spotswood. Vitor, do we have that queued up? All right, Beth, give it a listen. And then uh, when it's over, we'll come back, talk about it quickly, and wrap up. Okay. Let's move on. Now, Spotswood. I'm really excited about this. I'm actually not quite sure if I've ever had this wine. This was a very iconic wine. I visited Spotswood maybe right around the time this vintage, I might have actually had it out of barrel. This is the 2002 Spotswood Cabernet Sauvignon Estate. This is now selling actively at $170. I think it was a, a little bit less when it first came out. Do you remember when you got that? Maybe 80, it was 90? Prob- it's probably 85, 95. Yeah, bucks. 97 points. On the mailing list. 97 points, Robert Parker, 97. Now, Spotswood, again, when I was growing up, was hot, but was more like a 93, 94-point winery. To see Parker 97, really one of the wines of the great 
very heralded 2002 vintage, 2001 got a light up, but a lot of people love 2002. A buck 70, this wine. So we're rolling deep. It's a, it's a little Jay-Z P. Diddy here tonight. Um, I feel like we need to have like our own table or something, not just like this <laughs> crappy studio here. Uh, 97 Parker, Spotswood is a tremendous Napa Valley producer that has always been known for not being too over the top. Uh, and that's why I've always been a fan. I'm excited to see how this was matured. The color is insanity. It is dark. I mean, it is Darth Vader dark. Let's give it a sniffy sniff. Again, really good aromatics. This is what happens when you're putting wine and letting it sit for a little bit, calming down, sitting in a cellar, a temperature-controlled cellar. No, you don't keep it in oh, just some sunroom. Oh, um, you get a really kind of inky squid ink kind of thing going on that I like so much on the nose. Uh, there's a little like uh, motor oil going on that I like, but it's very subtle. Don't get scared. Blackberry and a little bit of like cassis drilling home on the finish. Not a lot of oak, which is always a pleasant surprise for Cabernet from Napa. Let's give it a whirl. <laughs> Swallowed it. Wow. This is not Wine and Web, you're not part of this show. This is spectacular. This reminds me of exactly what I wish California Cabernet from Napo tasted like. It's got the balance that we all go so crazy about with Bordeaux, right? Like, why can't it be more like Bordeaux? Well, because it's California. Um, but the beauty of this fruit is undeniable. This is almost like a, uh, there's a little beef jerky component. It's almost like you hung out with Macho Man Randy Savage, went and got a bunch of Slim Jims, and then wrapped them in like grape Jolly Ranchers and fruit roll-ups, and then took a bite, but it wasn't obnoxious, as that sounds. It was just, it was maybe, maybe you took the fruit roll-ups and the Slim Jims, and you went to the French Laundry, and they prepared it for you, right? So your white tablecloth, and it's like, blah, blah, and you're like, wow. I mean, that's what's going on with this wine. You can see the components of an obnoxiousness, but it's put into a very tight package. It's kind of like if I wore a suit and tie. That's what this wine reminds me of. I'm getting excited now. This wine is unbelievably well balanced and ridiculously, I'm using big adjectives now, ridiculously long on the finish. I still taste, still taste this sun-dried cranberry with almost like melted grape candy on top of it. And, and I'm using a lot of sweet references, and that's a mistake on my part. I want you to know that there's a subtle dark chocolate and a really nice bitter dark chocolate flavor mixed in that's kind of dominant, 30, 40% of the overall flavor. This is really, really good Cabernet. And you guys have collectively watched me in the first thousand episodes of Wine Library TV and now about eight or so on this one, and I'll tell you, there have not been where Parker went a little high, not a little, pretty high for me on this one, there have not, this may be the best Cabernet that I've had in the 1,008 wine shows that I've put out on the internet. This is spectacular. This is exactly the way it should be. And the only thing that upsets me is it's expensive. And I know 99% of you will not be able to go out and splurge on a $170 bottle of wine. That being said, you know, maybe you're going out and you're taking care of clients and you like whip out the expense card. Pretty high praise from a guy who gets it, huh, Beth? Yeah, that is that was that was extraordinarily high praise. Yes, I was glad to hear him hold that up as a benchmark. And yes, he went nuts over that wine, and I yes, brought it did. in because wow. I wanted to prove to him that uh, Napa Valley can make wines that rival anyone. And I'm a fan of all wines. Um, all right, Beth, we're going to wrap up. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. I'm going to post Beth's wine list and all her recommendations on our social media sites. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby. You can now follow hashtags, follow hashtag The Grape Nation. And on Twitter, we're at BenRuby. Also subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Beth, before we go, if people want to get more information on Spotswood or get their hand on it, what's the best thing, place people should go to? They should uh, just go to our website. It, everything is there. It's at Spotswood.com. So it's very easy to find S-P-O-T-T-S-W-O-O-D-E as an elephant.com. Okay. So two T's and an E on the end. And that is really the place to get the best information. Everything is there. Okay. Um, 
if you want to go on the site, you can get on the mailing list. There's some wine to order there, right? That is that is correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Early our 14 and 15 cab, which have to be which go together, um, and then uh, and then our 17 Sauvignon Blanc and our 15 Lindenhurst Cabernet Sauvignon. There you go. All right. I want to thank our guest Beth Novak Milliken. Beth is the president and CEO of Spotswood Winery out in California. I want to thank our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.